to the Starting With One podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Our goal is to provide our audience with interesting, relevant information on Canadian healthcare, financial and estate planning issues, and running a business. With each episode, Robin and Al will be exploring topics that matter to you. Starting With One is built off of our experience that we enhance the lives of many starting with one. Every great story that we get to share all started with one phone call, one conversation, or one meeting. These are the stories that make us very proud to do what we do, and it all starts with one. Welcome back to the Starting With One podcast. Good to be back with you again, and as always, or as usual, Al McDonald is with me, my business partner and my co-host. Welcome to the show, Al. Thanks, Robin. Oh, welcome. Good to be back. You're always here. I don't need, I to, wel- I don't need to welcome you back. I usually am. You know, Al, a few weeks ago, we did a podcast on wills uh, with Susanna Winsboro and got a lot of good feedback on it, and clients and prospects alike now know that when, when I bring in Al to meet you, the one of the first things he's going to be asking you is, is about a will, and obviously he's not out there trying to uh, drum up business for the law industry, but as we realized from the last podcast, it's such important a very important planning tool, and I learned a ton, so I'm happy to welcome Susanna back to the show today. So by popular demand, you're back to talk about some other legal matters, and with that, Al, I'll turn it over to you. Perfect. Thank you, Robin. Welcome back, Susanna. The last time we did talk a little bit about, uh, we talked a lot about wills, the importance of having a will, why you should have it in place, and maybe more importantly, why you shouldn't try to do it yourself. So today, I want to delve into something maybe a little bit more complex, maybe something that clients have heard about, and that's the question of trust. But before I get into that, do you want to just, again, maybe make a quick introduction in case someone did miss our first podcast? Just give us a little bit of, a, of your background. Sure. So I am a partner at Kaiser Mason Ball, specializing in estate planning and corporate reorganizations. Perfect. And we'll, at the end of the podcast, we will again tell you how to get a hold of Susanna if something in the podcast is of interest to you. But uh, I want to talk about trust, something that I quite often talk to my clients about. But again, I'm not a lawyer. I cannot set up a trust. I would never do that. I would always refer it out to someone like yourself. But I think um, the reason I want to talk about it is I do understand enough about them to you know, know when they can be effective and when they can be uh, used as an effective uh, planning tool. Trust definitely or something that maybe in the past were, for tax reasons, a little bit more popular. And there were some changes in some tax legislation a few years ago that, that maybe put them a little bit out of favor from, from a tax planning perspective. However, they can still be a very effective estate planning tool. So that's what I want to talk about today. Can you talk about maybe some typical use for trusts, where you would use them, why you would use them? for minors or whatever. I do have some specific questions I want to ask you, but why don't we start there, just talking about trust for minors, if that's okay. Sure. So trust for minors is the most typical trust that we do, and I call it a trust for a minor, but it can go beyond the age of 18. And these are typically trusts that individuals are setting up for their children so that their children, if they are under the age of majority, so are under the age of 18, don't receive a lump sum of money at the age of 18 upon their untimely death. So the trusts that we typically set up in our wills for children, they go until the age of 30, but they give particular distributions at the age of 21 and 25. Okay. And the, the reason behind that is that it's spreading that money out that they would receive over a period of time so that if they haven't really learned how to handle money, you're giving them a lump sum, you're giving them a certain amount at an age, at a younger age, 
allowing them to figure out what to do with it at that point. If they've messed up, then they're going to get another lump sum, figure out how to handle it at that point. And if by the time they're 30, they haven't figured it out as well, <laughs> then <laughs> there's nothing much we can do about that. But 30 is the typical age that we do the final distribution. Now, that having been said, it's completely up to you how you want to set up a trust for your children. If there are more substantial funds, then you may consider making a lifetime trust for your children instead of giving the, the various distributions. And in that situation, you can introduce grandchildren as well so you can do some income splitting. Right. So typically what I uh, talk with my clients about is, are you prepared that at age 18, your child can get a lump sum of money and do anything with it? And usually people, the answer is, oh, uh, no, that's probably not a good idea. So what I'm hearing from you is a trust can address that. A trust can basically say, we won't give this lump sum of money to my 18-year-old who could go out and blow it on whatever. Now we have some controls around how and when they're going to receive the money and hopefully they will be a little bit more responsible with it. Would that be fair to say? That's right. And even though you've set out in your will those certain distributions, it doesn't mean that they're cut off from access to additional funds, but that okay. would be up to your executor. Okay. So the person that you've named to manage that trust will still be able to distribute money out for whatever reason. Typically it would more so be for healthcare, for education, maybe a down payment on a home, for helping out in those situations. But those ages that you specify are the ages where they're actually receiving cash in hand. So if I'm the person setting up the trust, what I think I just heard is I can give the trustee, the person who looks after the trust, who manages it, I can give them some discretion and I can say something like, hey, if my child, when they're 20 years old, needs to have some money to be able to go to university, I'm okay with you distributing some money for that purpose. Is that Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So you've got some discretion around how that money can be distributed to your 18-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever the age is. Yes. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about spousal trust because I think, again, this is something where people may not realize the power of what a trust can do and how it can be set up. So again, one thing that I quite often encounter in dealing with my clients are second marriages. And we've got people, clients who may be on a second marriage and they want obviously some of their money to be able to go to their new spouse if something happens to them. But at the same time, they also want their kids from their first marriage, let's say, to ultimately get the money or to, or at least have some of that money go to their kids when they ultimately pass away. So how can a spousal trust address some of the issues around that situation? So a spousal trust is, it's really set up, as it says, for the spouse. What you can do is have all of your estate go into that spousal trust for the benefit of your spouse, or you can have a portion of it go to the benefit of your spouse. But what it actually does is it allows your spouse to receive any of the income that's generated through the assets that are in that trust. So they get the income for the balance of their lifetimes. And then for the capital that's within the trust, you can give your spouse through the trustee access to all of it, or you can limit it to a certain amount per year. So it's capped at maybe, let's say 50,000 they can access per year, or you can say absolutely no access to the capital that's within that trust. And what that does is it preserves that capital for the children on the death of the spouse. So again, you've got some control as the person who put the trust together. You've still got some control. You can give some discretion to the person who's looking after the money. 
and some rules around that as to when and how to distribute. So let's say a spouse comes along and they say, hey, I've got a $25,000 bill for a new roof on my house and I, I can't afford the income. That might be something where the person looking after the money can say, okay, we can distribute some capital to be able to address that kind of a one-time need, if you will. Yep, that's right. That's okay. right. So there is discretion with that trustee for access to the capital. Okay. And again, what I'm hearing is the, the, the good part about that is setting up this trust will ultimately, the, the money will ultimately end up in the children's hands, which is maybe what you wanted. But in the meantime, you know that your spouse has the income to live off. They're not yeah, going to be they're left, being taken care yeah, of. Yeah, they're not going to be left homeless or destitute right. or anything like that. They're going to have income to be able to look after them. That's correct. Okay. Now, just one thing that I, I do want to throw out there is if you are setting up a spousal trust and you have open access to the capital, then you really do need to consider who you're naming as the trustee. Because right. if you name the spouse as the trustee and you're saying you get all the income and open access to the capital, and the idea is that capital is to be saved for the children, then there's not a lot of protection there. The right. spouse is full of capital. They can take all the money and use it for themselves. So again... Naming that trustee, that person who's going to look after the money, that's an important decision. Very important, yes. Okay. And I'm going to assume that, again, with your experience, you could help guide a client through that. Absolutely. Perfect. Another area that, again, we talk about quite often is Henson Trust. And I think this is, and again, you know more about this than I do, but I think this is more for people who maybe have someone who has a disability, some special needs. Again, the Henson Trust, I think that's a term that is thrown around and people may have heard of it. But I don't think there's a whole lot of understanding around it. So maybe can you talk a little bit about Henson Trust, who this would be beneficial for, how it works, that type of thing. Sure. So a Henson Trust is typically set up for an individual, a beneficiary who has a special need and is receiving government support like ODSP. And what this trust does is it allows money from an inheritance to go into the trust and not cause that government support to be clawed back in any way because of receiving that amount of money. Okay. So they're trickier to draft than a typical trust. They do have special language that is required to make sure that the money doesn't vest in that particular individual because if it vests in the individual, then it does cause a clawback of that support. And another thing to keep in mind is because these types of trusts do last for the lifetime of that individual, you need to consider, again, who you're naming as that trustee. Right. Because if it's someone who is significantly older right. than, the, than the beneficiary, then that trustee... Exactly. The person who Yeah, the beneficiary money, yeah. may outlive that person. Okay. And you said ODSP. Maybe some people don't know what ODSP is, the Ontario Disability Support Program, right? Which is a program that does provide some income to people with some disabilities. That's right. Okay. So what I think I'm hearing is trusts can very much have an important role in how you're setting up your will. And three very, very typical trusts to set up would be one, for minor children, two, for a spouse to make sure that they have some income, or three, someone who has some special needs or some disabilities. Those would be probably the three most common types of trust that you would set up through will. Is that yes. fair to say? Yes, that is. Okay, perfect. I think that's really important. And again, we talked about this last time. That's not something that, again, from a will that you get off a shelf, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to do this kind of thing without talking to someone like yourself. Someone who's who's got some familiarity, some experience 
on how to set up wills, what the pitfalls are. If you're in any of these situations, that would absolutely be a reason for someone to sit down with someone like you exactly. that really knows what they're doing. That's this, right. You, you don't want to mess this up. No, you want to really walk through the type of trust that makes sense for your estate plan and who that trustee will be. Fair enough. Okay, perfect. So beyond that, beyond the importance of a trust, one other thing that I, I do want to talk about with you, and that is a power of attorney. Can you talk about what a power of attorney is and how it relates to a will and what the importance of it is and, and you know, just give us some background on what a power of attorney is. Sure. So where a will comes into effect upon your death and you've named a person to deal with your assets and distribute them, a power of attorney comes into effect during your lifetime. So it actually ends on your death. Okay. And a power of attorney is the document that allows you to name who you want to take care of you, manage your affairs in the event that you're unable to make decisions for yourself. Okay. So in Ontario, there are two powers of attorney. There's a power of attorney for personal care and there's a power of attorney for property. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about each one of those? Sure. Your power of attorney for personal care that is the document where you're naming a person who will make decisions about really everything to do with your body when you can't make those decisions for yourself. Okay. And the typical situation is you're in the hospital, you're on life support, and the doctor's saying, hey, are we ending the life support or are we continuing the life support? And it's typically your attorney who will be making that decision. But it extends beyond that. It's also for a situation where you... Let's say you have dementia, you need to be in a facility, it's that person who will choose what facility you'll be going to, or if you can get 24-hour care at home. And in that event, that person will be making decisions about everything to do with your care, your nutrition, how often you get your hair cut, how often you get your nails cut, all right. of those decisions. So it's not just a situation where you're in the hospital, it extends right. beyond that. Okay, and more and more we are seeing a lot of people with exactly what you described, dementia, they're in uh, maybe a long-term care facility. So you very important to have someone named as your power of attorney for personal care to make those decisions for you. Mm-hmm, that's okay. right. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you should choose someone that you really trust, and that is going to make those decisions in your best interest. That's right. So when someone asks you about that, do you have any recommendations about how to choose that person? Again, I'm going to guess that most people just say, oh, it's my spouse or it's my child. That's right. So, I mean, in, in most cases, your spouse does actually care about you. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so, yeah. So, that's a typical first choice. And then what I'll ask is for a backup in the event that the spouse can't act. And in that situation, a lot of people, again, say, oh, I'm going to name my kids all together. But if you have a child who lives closer to you or is more involved in your personal care, then you may just consider naming that person rather than bringing in all children to make that decision. Right. Okay, so that's the personal care attorney. What about a power of attorney for property? So the power of attorney for property, again, you're naming a person who will be managing all of your finances and all of your assets. Now this document, like I said earlier, it's usually used in a situation where you're, you can't make decisions for yourself, but this one actually does come into effect the day you sign it. Right. So you do need to be really careful with who you're naming. And right. again, most people name their spouses, most of the assets are held jointly anyway, so there isn't so much of a risk there. But when you're naming the alternate, you really need to consider that you're saying to this person, here's a document that gives you access to all of my assets and all of my finances. Right. And they can do with those assets what they want. They're supposed to 
use them for your benefit. They do have a fiduciary duty to act in your best interest, yeah. but there's always that risk that with that document, they can take all your assets and they can take off. Right. So that's something that you really need to understand. That person has to be at least 18. I wouldn't recommend an 18-year-old to, <laughs> no, no. to manage all your assets and finances when you can't, but typically people are naming spouses and then for the alternate, I will recommend that they name more than one person so that there's a bit more control there. Right. So... If someone has named two powers of attorney, should we call them co-powers of attorney? So someone walks into a bank and tries to withdraw money, do they need both powers of attorney there or at least signatures for both powers of attorney? So both, how that would work? Both attorneys would have to be involved, yes. Okay. So at least like you say, there's a little bit of, of extra safeguard because you're right. As soon as you name that power of attorney, in theory, they could go into your bank and say, I've got the power of attorney with this client and withdraw their money. That's right. Yeah. So again, you need to have some trust in the person that you're naming. One last question, maybe before I wrap up, do you get people who name powers of attorney and maybe don't discuss it with the people they've named? Like they they don't even know about it. Yes, we do. So it's funny. And honestly, it's it's very funny that people are very secretive about these sorts of decisions, which doesn't really make sense when the when the situation arises and the person doesn't know that they're supposed to be stepping into that role. Right. So my suggestion is let them know that no. their name is an attorney. It doesn't mean you have to give them the document. Right. You can keep that somewhere safe at home, not in a safety deposit box because they'll typically need it to get into can. that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but somewhere safe at home, but let them know right. because they'll need to take first steps. They'll, they'll need to know that they're the ones that have to start doing something. Yeah. Okay. So let's wrap it up there. Uh, Some great information on trusts and how they work and where they can be used. And then again, obviously, the power of attorney, the importance of of that document. So anything to add before we sign off for the day? Any other questions, Robin, from your end? Once again, a really interesting episode, really selfishly for me because I'm sitting back and taking it all in. It's a lot of great information. As we said last time, if you want to find out more about this or estate planning or, or wills or all of this good stuff, probably the best way is to reach out to either Al or myself. If you want to reach out to Susanna directly, that's great too. Or you can join the conversation on LinkedIn. And as always, remember, it all starts with one.